Okay. You got all the show notes for for your uh, No. I sent you an extra Google Doc, so that should have like everything in there that okay. we were going to go over. All right, I'll get the door. Is that Ben? Yeah, that's that's emo Kylo Ren. He's he's here again. Oh God! Should we just let him in? His mom works out with my mom. We should probably let him in. All right, come come on in, man. Thank you for having me. I was told that you have a podcast. Uh, yeah, Star Wars podcast. Stephen had told me that I could read some of my poetry. Stephen. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, you know what? Go ahead, man. Emo Kylo Ren, go ahead. Thank you. Cue the music, please. Dear Diary, I'm all stuffed up. But on the dark side, my breathing sounds quite impressive with the helmet. Dear Diary, I think I'm coming down with something. I've been sneezing into my helmet all morning. I wonder how Darth Vader dealt with this. Dear Diary, I wish people wouldn't say things cost an arm and a leg. My grandfather lost an arm and both legs, and it wasn't a joking matter. Dear Diary, Mom says I can't have an ashtray in my bedroom. I tried to explain it's not for smoking, it's for the remains of my enemies. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, man. You can... Are, are you done? That's everything I have. Were we still going to play badminton next weekend? Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. See you later. We'll, see we'll, you later. We'll, call, we'll call you. All right? Thanks, man. Bye. Let's never have him on the show. I'm sorry. Yes. I told him we had a podcast. I didn't think he'd actually come by. <laughs> I'll just edit that out. Yeah, just edit it. You can cut it out. Like it never happened. <laughs> will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Beltway Banthas podcast, a Star Wars podcast coming at you from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Tirso Perez, I think. And joining me today is Steven, the sometimes host, Kent. Are you not Tirso Perez, or are you not the host? Sometimes I'm just not really sure who I am, Steven. I understand that a whole lot. I understand. You know what, man? I, I saw it. I saw those pictures you posted. And for those of you who know what I'm talking about, General Hux... Are you the general of the show now? Is that what you're trying to tell me? So there, there is some speculation that I either should have been cast as General Hux because of my my general look or vibe, my icy vibes yeah. that I have going on. You do give some icy uh, vibes. Uh, it, it happened, I think, about three or four times organically. Just just yeah. people being like sending me pictures of that first image of General Hux that came out in a magazine, uh, where he's just looking all pissed off in his uh, in his jacket. Uh, they're like, Steven, that guy looks just like you. And I'm like, oh my God, yes. All I, all I ever really wanted was to be an Imperial officer, uh, as a, as a lad, that was my favorite thing was the officers. So, yeah. um, so yes, my, uh, my photo on our new website, beltwaybanthas.com is definitely me photoshopped under the body of my new bay, General Hux. More like General Sucks. 
Hey. <laughs> hey now. All right, man. God, how was your week, Stephen? How was your week? My week was good. My week was good. Uh, I'm just happy it was the weekend. Um, my grandfather passed away this week. Um, that was something. So I was down in South Carolina um, for all those proceedings and the funeral, and that was that was sad. Um, yeah, sorry to hear that, man. Yeah, um, he was he was sick. He had diabetes, um, and he had to have his toes removed, and it just went south. Um, he went in for the surgery. Uh, to get that done, and then just multiple organs started failing, and so we just didn't think we were going to lose him. We weren't really prepared for that, yeah. um, so that was sad for everybody, but we were down there for the whole weekend, um, both enjoying South Carolina's lovely beaches, but also just enjoying time with family and reconnecting. Uh, yeah, got back, got back midweek, um, worked a nice busy week, and now I'm just here enjoying a nice cup of coffee with my friend Tirso. Cool, man. Well, I'm glad to hear you could enjoy that. Yeah, my, my week was kind of just work. Uh, I referenced the Rihanna song when I say that I've just been working all week. Uh, <laughs> I'm tired, but I'm way more excited to be sitting down and talking about Star Wars. Me too. Um, I've, been, I've been jazzed about this uh, discussion all week. Yeah, man. So we kind of talked a little bit in the previous episode about what Today's episode is going to be about mainly the Senate and the politics of the prequels and how they work, why they're important. But before we dive into that, we're just going to cover some quick news and stories that have been released this week. By the time you're hearing this, it'll be kind of in the past, so bear with us as we catch up to current time. But uh, right now, what uh, we've most recently heard is the uh, debunking of the Snoke cameo in Rogue One rumors, which uh, for me was a huge letdown. Um, not in the sense that I really, really wanted it to happen, because I think there's parts of it that I didn't want to happen, but I just really liked my theory, man. I thought it was solid. Your your theory was was a theory. It was well uh, thought out, is what it was. Was it? It was. <laughs> General sucks. <laughs> Ooh. Well, so ice cold. I mean, man. I like I like what Pablo said. Pablo said it's a standalone movie. It, yeah. it, it can't be a standalone movie if it is tied to other things. Right. Um, I think that there is potential for it to be tied to Rebels because that is a a. A plot line that you know obviously starts before it, but I think to tie it to any of the things that we've seen in the main films, I think would would it would just upset the balance of I think what these standalone movies are supposed to accomplish, which are just Star Wars stories. Yeah, and I, and I agree because the where I jump on board with it, and although I did have this extremely well thought out theory, I would just I would just kind of stress that it is important for them to be able to branch out. Um, now, obviously, it's a little harder with the Star Wars films because what we've had so far is a very well-connected saga. You know, it's all about the Skywalkers. It's all about the same yeah, yeah. family. So it, it is kind of uh, almost muscle memory for us as Star Wars fans to, you know, see... This is our first exposure to a, a new kind of Star Wars film, so we're uh, almost automatically going to say... You know, we put on our tinfoil hats very quickly. Exactly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Who's this person tied to? What's the meaning behind this? How can I relate this to the main franchise? Exactly. Uh, it's really hard not to do that. Totally. And 
I bet they're still. I bet they're still going to throw a curveball in there somewhere. Yeah, like Easter and, egg. And but, I, you know. I don't think they're not going to tie it into the movies. I think that's. I mean, we already see that with Mon Mothma, obviously, but kind of like you said i don't think it's going to be in any major way because i think it would probably take away from the story if it was like hey snoke is in this movie and now we can understand why and then the whole you you're at the end credits and you're like wait i didn't i didn't pay attention to the character development of jen or so because i was thinking about how she might be related to ray um and and uh, you know that thought went through my head you know when the trailer came out i was thinking hey brown british kind of kind of like we talked about in the last episode I thought she might have been related, but that wasn't a confident thought. It was just something that happened mm-hmm. to be in my head. So part of me, although I did have my own theory about what the hooded figure was and who was in the back tank, as much as I love to theorize and play the guessing game, I am kind of glad that Pablo, you know, kind of spoke out and was just kind of like, no, no, it's not, mm-hmm. not happening. It's, this is not, it's a standalone film because it kind of gives, it gives Disney kind of a little bit of rapport there because they're not just trying to make a film that speaks to the theories or the unanswered questions in episode seven, but they're trying to expand the universe of Star Wars. So part of me's glad, part of me's kind of sad that the part that really likes to theorize, but ultimately it was a slightly refreshing piece of news. Our next uh, Star Wars movie news could be, for some listeners, considered a little spoiler territory. So if you're in the place where you're not really wanting to hear any rumors or anything, any speculation, feel free to fast forward about five minutes and we'll be all done talking major spoilers. Because what we're talking about could potentially be major spoilers for the Rogue One uh, film. Yep, so make that jump. So the news is that Mads Mikkelsen let slip in a Sky News interview uh, a little information about his character in Rogue One. Uh, I read the script, it was very beautiful, and Felicitas playing this lovely, young and strong woman. I played her father, and that's, that was too much, I'm sorry. Everybody in the gallery just went, oh, you can tell it's Darth Vader's in it as well, then. Yes, I can, but I won't. Oh, okay. So clearly... He might have been kind of in the moment, just kind of talking, and all of a sudden, he maybe let something slip that he wasn't supposed to. Got a little loosey-goosey. Yes. So, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think this is at all important to the film? Do you you personally feel like this is a spoiler? What do you think, Steven? I don't think it's a spoiler. Um, I... I cannot remember where I had originally heard the information, but I just, I remember at some point the character of Mods Nicholson being discussed and that he was going to be the father of a rebel in the movie. So I think it just sort of adds that clarity to what I had already suspected. Um, but I think it also will make uh, Jenny or so a little bit more interesting because we'll know a little bit more about her background, why she rebels. Um, and, you know, if she, if she is the daughter of an Imperial agent of some sort, then I think that will uh, that will make it a little bit more compelling why she feels a need to rebel against the Empire as well as her family. Yeah, the only reason that I felt this was even remotely spoiler territory was my first thought was that she may or may not be some kind of bounty hunter or in some kind of community of bounty hunters because in that first trailer we saw um, Forrest Whitaker talking to her almost in a mentor kind of way and but this is all based on theory because i theorize that 
Forrest Whitaker's character might be a bounty hunter, so if he's mentoring uh, Felicity Jones's character, then she might be some kind of bounty hunter. Not to say that if he is her father, that that spoils that theory for me. It just kind of gives, for me, a little bit less credibility if he is some kind of imperial officer. Um, it's not really that much of like, I didn't hear and go, oh, great, no. I'll show myself out. I know exactly what's going to happen in this movie. Good night, Disney. Yeah, it really doesn't change. It doesn't change anything. So, with Star Wars this week, uh, have you been Star Warsing on anything? Have you been watching anything or consuming anything from the franchise this week that's like had your interest? Yeah, I gotta be honest. I'm really eagerly awaiting uh, Bloodlines by uh-huh. Claudia Gray. Uh, I have it pre-ordered on audible.com uh, and yes. I'm just waiting for the ability to drive to work and listen to a few chapters. Um, I've never been so glad that I have an hour and a half long commute every day because <laughs> it just will allow me to dig into this book three hours a day. Exactly. I'm interrupted. Exactly. I can't wait. I feel the same way. Yeah, for me, I watched episode one a few times this week and just revisited it to kind of get a little bit more of a framer for the show because today we want to talk a little bit about the politics of it and why it's so important. Um, And just watching it uh, again, because it's it's been a a little while for me. It's been probably a few months, which to some people they're like, dude, it's been like three years. But for me, that's a long time uh, to not watch a Star Wars film. So it's been a few months and just watching it with the context that we kind of want to talk about the the depth of it and the parts of it, I was just watching Palpatine and his plan, and I was just so in love with this man. And in a very backwards, kind of mm-hmm. weird way, uh, he's so brilliant. The way that he sets sets up this chaos, almost. Almost a, a faux chaos. I mean, it was very much a war that happened in the uh, prequel trilogy, but it was so masterfully organized in a way that it, it's the reason why, in my opinion, Darth Sidious is one of the greatest on-screen villains to date. And the other thing is, too, is the intelligence of his politics. It doesn't just stop at be- making the, the galaxy ruled by an empire. He still has a plan. When he's, when he's in Return of the Jedi and he's trying to seduce Luke... That plan doesn't stop there. We don't know what it was, but we know that he still had an idea. He was still moving forward. He was very much a politician. He always had a plan of moving forward. And when it, while I was watching episode one, I just I saw that again. I saw a, a villain who was constantly a million steps ahead of every guy in front of him. Which actually brings us to our main topic for today, where Stephen's going to break down the Senate and the politics of the prequel trilogy, and why it's so important to the saga as a whole. Uh, But before we dive into that, we had stated in the mission of our show that Beltway Banthas is a Star Wars podcast that's inspired by Stephen and I's different angles of fandom. Uh, Mine being rooted in my love for film, and my passion for the experience and the adventure and the characters. Um, and Stevens being very much so rooted in politics. Uh, Steven, you actually work uh, in politics, and it's just something that you are extremely passionate about, um, which brings a whole new angle of fandom that I personally love to hear about. We want to allow you guys to be able to hear our different angles of how we enjoy Star Wars. Uh, And of course, Stevens being politics. So we're going to try our best to create these segments and 
these parts of the shows where we can kind of dive into the parts of Star Wars that we really enjoy. And we'd love to hear from you guys. If you want to hear more of a certain segment or have an idea for one, feel free to shoot us an email at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you guys think. Um, But again, uh, we'd love to take the time in this episode and a few after this to just discuss some of the politics and what goes on in the Star Wars universe that allows Palpatine to rise the power. And we're going to try our best to draw some real-life instances and situations that can allow everyone to have a deeper understanding of what really goes on. And uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. So, without further ado, (laughs) we present to you Senator Stevens' Galactic Senate. In order to ensure the security and continuing stability, the Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. So in my time working in this industry, people are just being around political people. Star Wars is something that when it comes up, the conversations are always incredibly interesting. That's not to say they're better or loftier conversations or anything. They're just different. The nature of what is going on in different people's heads when they talk about this topic varies across the board. Some people are into the philosophy. Some people are into the war. Some people are into the romance. Some people are into how the government works in the uh, in the old republic. Um, but what we do in our day-to-day lives, what we do in our professional lives maybe, that impacts our fandom and the way that we see the franchise and all the stories and different plots that go on within it. So what we wanted to do is talk about what are the politics of Star Wars. And we have decided to start that where the franchise begins. And I don't mean 1977, but 1999 with The Phantom Menace. Star Wars' approach to politics is very much archetypal. It paints very broad pictures. And it leaves a lot of room for interpretation, which I think is more fun. Um, But what is the Galactic Senate? How exactly does it work? What kind of institution is this? But that's actually a really tough question because there is so much vagary in the series about how things work in this body. Um, There are many details in Legends and EU materials, but as they're no longer canon, we can't really... We don't really know what to do with that information if we're supposed to take it as a composite or take it literally. And I think... The most important thing, and the reason why we watched that film this week, was to use what we have, because now that we're in this new era of Star Wars, all we have that's canonical so far is the movies. And, and to... the Clone Wars. Which, you know, to prepare for this episode, I, I actually dug into the Clone Wars series. I watched like six specific episodes dealing with Senator Rush Clovis. One of the old love interests of uh, of Padme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have you ever seen those episodes? I haven't actually. Yeah, so they they are these great series of episodes featuring Rush Clovis. He's the senator from Scipio, um, which is the planet of the banking clan. And apparently, him and Padme Amidala were a thing uh, when she first started her career as a senator before oh, she got involved with Anakin. 
Um, lots of corruption, um, lots of dealing going on there, lots of financial talk about how regulation and financial regulation works in the old republic. Um, but that was sort of like my crash course for being able to talk about this. But that series has actually become much deeper in my mind than I ever thought it was. But I never really liked the Clone Wars very much until the past couple months when I really started digging into it for stuff outside of the, the war material. Um, but I'll tell you, the greatest material for the politics of Star Wars is the Darth Plagueis book by James Luceno. That is full book. of juicy, juicy information and all those details about the wheeling and dealing, the coalition building, and the way that coalitions in that body work. Um, I like that book so much that I would tattoo the entire thing across my entire body if wow. I could. That would... Uh... Uh, it yeah. is <laughs> okay. It is, it is that good. It is that good. So that is that your validation for how good things are? Is whether or not you would tattoo, I would tattoo it, on it across your, my entire body? Like right. for a politics nerd like myself, that book is satisfying. Right. So let's start off talking about the Senate. What is it? How does it work? Well, what we know is that the Senate has a Supreme Chancellor and a Vice Chair, as well as a delegation of thousands of senators. Um, George Lucas had her, I think he had said in, in 1977, in, in like a cheat sheet for people who are going to be doing books on Star Wars, that there were 24,000 systems in the Galactic Senate. Um, during the prequels, I guess you have to take into consideration that people are leaving the Republic for the Confederacy of Independent Systems uh, or the Separatist Movement. Um, but for the most part, I mean, this is a very large body. But what we know is that the Supreme Chancellor is voted in by a majority of the delegates in the Senate, of which there are many, um, and that the Vice Chair is the person who actually helps run the agenda and set how the Senate is going to be doing its votes. Um, the Vice Chair is Masamaida. Uh, Masameda Masamata, that's the big blue guy who's always standing next to uh, next to Palpatine with the big staff or scepter. Order! We shall have order! You can always count on him to shout order in any part of the movies. Um, but in the Republic, the vice chair, Masameda, has the ability to manage what is brought to the floor for a vote, and he gets to set the agenda for what goes on in the chamber. I think one of the best ways to think about this is it's similar to the role of the U.S. Speaker of the House, except for that the Speaker of the House, currently Paul Ryan of Wisconsin, he is the leader of the chamber, but what he does is he controls the agenda for what is voted on in that chamber. So even, even if there is a majority of people in the House of Representatives who want to vote on an issue, if... Paul Ryan does not call it for a vote. It will not be brought up. The same goes for the Senate chamber as well. So that being said, in terms of well, Masamata, his influence in the uh, senator meetings, how much influence do you think Palpatine had on Masamata in terms of what was being brought to discussion? Well, I think, I mean... Masamata is is clearly a puppet for Palpatine. I think anybody who's in his apparatus obviously does what he wants to do. Um, it's worth noting that Masamata was the vice chair under Chancellor Valorum as well, and then he was tapped by Palpatine to continue his tenure. And Masamata went on to be part of the Empire and be um, be a leader, have a leadership role in the Empire as well. So I think it's just worth noting that what he basically is is he's the gatekeeper for Senator Palpatine. Like, if you want to get something uh, across the desk of the Supreme Chancellor, you're going to have to get it across Masamata first. Um, 
But I, I think, I mean, obviously Senator Palpatine, I say Senator Chancellor Palpatine controls, controls what really goes on. So again, sort of thinking about how this plays into the structures that we have here in the United States, just think about like the immense national tension that we had over immigration reform uh, when it passed the U.S. Senate, barely, and President Obama had wanted to sign it. But then Speaker John Boehner, um, now former Speaker John Boehner, refused to bring it up for a vote. Just because one house of our legislature passes something doesn't obligate the other to consider it. So that level of power is huge. So we have to remember that for all the senators who don't know how powerful Chancellor Palpatine really is, Masamata is that gatekeeper figure. But anyways, that kind of brings us to the senators. Um, this is where things get really weird in the Galactic Republic, uh, but it's also telling about how the Senate functions, or why more so it doesn't always work. Senators are chosen as delegates from their planets and or systems, depending on the governance of that region. So star systems are members of the Republic, as are individual planets. It definitely seems to vary. You may have uh, a person in the in the in the Senate who just represents a single world, or you may have somebody who's representing an entire system. <clears throat> Star systems are members of the Republic as are individual planets. It just sort of seems to vary. So take Naboo, for example. In episode one, we meet Queen Amidala, who is an elected monarch, um, which also runs contrary to our understanding of monarchs here on Earth. Naboo also has a senator who is popularly elected. And he's responsible for representing the planet in the Galactic Senate. Um, now, that varies from planet to planet and system to system. There are some systems where a monarch or ruling class just nominate and appoint somebody to go represent them. Um, I think one example we had mentioned, Rush Clovis, um, is somebody who is just tapped by the banking clan um, and the leaders of Scipio to represent them in the Senate. And one way to think about that, uh, just like as a fun fact, the U.S. Senate used to function that way uh, up until the 17th Amendment was passed in the first couple years of the, of the 20th century. Um, it used to be that U.S. senators were elected by state legislatures. So your state House of Representatives and state Senate would appoint your U.S. senator to go to D.C. and represent you. Now they are popularly elected by the people. Um, so some of that still exists in the, in, in the Republic. Um, but Amidala, so she makes it to Coruscant and she's able to speak in front of everybody, which seems normal. That's sort of like when Bibi Netanyahu comes from Israel and he's able to speak to the House of Representatives about his opposition to the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, that's really like the exact same appeal. Queen Amidala is trying to raise attention and, and, and preach her opposition to what the Trade Federation is doing in the blockade. Um, Bibi Netanyahu comes and talks about his opposition to what is being allowed with the Iran nuclear deal. However, the queen is able to call for a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum, which I, <laughs> Bibi Netanyahu cannot call for President Obama to be impeached and removed. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is not where there is a connection. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the unanswered questions is why the heck does she have a say in what goes on in the Senate? One thing that I think is interesting about that motion is 
it is exactly what it sounds like. And that is a popular parliamentary procedure um, that you can see in the UK and Canada and in Japan. Um, in the United States, motions are styled as no confidence, are only symbolic, and they never really happen. Your party leadership in the United States can pass these motions as a form of condemnation of, say, the president or any other elected official, but it can't do anything. You can pass a vote of no confidence or a censure of a person, but then you just move on. It's it's strictly symbolic. So, um, well, like... In just one sentence, what would you define a vote of no confidence being? A vote of no confidence is a display by a parliament that they no longer trust the leadership or the leading coalition. So they're, um, they're just like, hey, we, we don't like the way you're doing things. They, so yeah, they don't like the way you're doing things. I vote that you suck at yeah. what you're doing. <laughs> they, and it's... it's it's different in every country, but like uh, Japan, for example, if the House of Representatives in Japan passes uh, with a majority, then the president in Japan has to step down and his entire government has like a week to vacate their offices before a new government is installed. Um, Canada does this and the UK does this, but the UK doesn't really do this uh, often because they have their stuff together. <laughs> So basically, uh, Chancellor Palpatine is representing Naboo, and then you have uh, Queen Amidala show up on the scene, and she calls for a vote of no confidence. And I guess my question is, is how... Now, I guess where it gets kind of fishy, uh, and I guess you could kind of say a little bit of a political scandal, is that um, Padme and Darth Sidious are from the same planet. Uh, how far back do you think his plan goes with this to not only convince Queen Amidala to vote, to have a vote of no confidence for Chancellor Valorum, but to, because Valorum stepping down ultimately is what sets up the rest of his plan. It's a huge key. It's a huge uh, stepping stone to him taking over the galaxy. Well, Palpatine thought he could control Queen Amidala. Um, this, this again goes back to the Darth Plagueis book. Let's just take it as if there's some fact in there. So she is a young girl who's involved in local politics on Naboo, and Palpatine pushes her to run for queen um, because he believes that once she's in that position, he can control her for his ends because obviously he's better and more skilled. Um, she wins, she becomes the queen, and then she becomes a major thorn in his side because, surprise, Padme is really smart and really self-sufficient. Um, so I think he was planning this for a long time. He needed somebody who could be um, unknowingly his shill as the, as the leader of Naboo and someone who could also then take the fall when he needed them to take the fall. So I think, I think absolutely was playing a long game with getting Amidala up there. Now, in terms of, as we discuss the politics of Episode One, we do have the Jedi Council. Um, to kind of put a framer for this, what in the real world could we draw to say as a almost mirror image to the Jedi Council and how they actually influence the politics for Star Wars? So they're a religious organization. Think of about them as a religious organization maybe the catholic church i'm just like pulling this pulling this off the top of my head but take uh take europe you have your monarchs 
in the in, in the dark ages i'm i'm not a medieval uh studies person but you have your monarchs and your government bureaucrats but then you also have the cardinal the pope um and the catholic church so your government is not only run by the edicts of your land but also the edicts of the church so the Republic is in bed with a religious organization that they rely on for peacekeeping um, and military operations. So I guess where where that kind of gets fuzzy is if they are a religious organization, it'd be hard to say that they're a religious organization with military abilities. They're, it almost seems like they're more of a mili- military organization with vastly religious undertones because the Jedi are really seen to be... Kind of the Navy SEAL Team 6 a little bit. Um, yeah, I think I kind of think of them as the UN peacekeeping team with the little blue helmets. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, the UN uh, Security Council decides that there is an, an issue where peacekeeping is needed, and they send in a coalition army that represents all the countries in the United Nations, and they wear their little blue their little blue helmets and blue body armor as a symbol of international support for whatever issue they're taking on. And I think the Jedi are exactly that. They are a decided upon peacekeeping force that represents the interests of the whole Republic. And if you have a Jedi coming to establish peace, a.k.a. wielding force in your region, means the Republic has has decided unanimously against you. So I think that's one way to frame it. So kind of going back to the structure of the Senate, we were talking a few minutes ago about the members the actual senators themselves. One thing that I think is really meaty, and some of this should be put off for another time, but there are senators from trade unions, and most importantly, the Trade Federation. This is fascinating and says a lot to me about what the author wants us to think about politics. And when I say the author, I mean George Lucas. Um, But the Trade Federation has Senator Lot Dodd repping them in Congress with an actual vote. Their constituents are just moneyed interest. It's like, uh, I don't know, this may be a stretch, but the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce actually having a vote in the House or the Senate um, in D.C. The Chamber of Commerce is one of the top 15 most influential lobbying groups on Capitol Hill. So in Star Wars, George Lucas just went ahead and gave the equivalent of the Chamber of Commerce a vote. And that is a statement. That in and of itself is a political statement about money and politics. And excuse me, Tirso, I would like to put forward a motion to table discussion of money and politics for another episode. I second the motion. I can't. I can't hear you, Tirso. Second. Second the motion to table the discussion. You second the table. You second the what? Second the. God. Second the motion. Table the discussion. A majority has been reached. Don't the motion passes on the table, Stephen. <laughs> we will have order. Order. We will have order. God. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for playing my game, Tears. I will not defer. I've come before you to resolve this attack on our sovereignty. Now, I was not elected to watch my people suffer and die while you discuss this invasion in a committee. This body is not capable of action. I suggest So ultimately Palpatine is able to come to power because of a lack of consistency in the Senate. So 
How and why does the Senate not work in Star Wars? What's going on there? Well, we hear early and often about the dysfunction of the Senate and its inability to act. I mean, thinking, thinking it's the, one of the first things that we hear when Queen Amidala gets off her ship. Like, before she's even seated in Palpatine's office, he's already pretty much told her it's full of squabbling, bickering delegates, and all they do is talk. They don't do anything. Um, so it's important to remember, like we've, we've said, that it's what George Lucas wants us to take away in our minds. And what he wants us to take away in our minds when we watch this is Congress does not work. Um, there's a really great piece by Seth Maskett of Vox, and I think he nailed why the Senate really doesn't work. And this is going to be controversial. But it's because the, the Galactic Senate needs political parties. We, I mean, it's crazy. We live in one of the most statistically polarized times in American political history where parties have never been so unpopular and divisive in culture. However, in the case of the Republic, they don't appear to have formal political parties. There is no group dedicated to accountability, oversight, and investigation. You could also call that obstruction. There is no group dedicated solely to stopping Palpatine for purely political reasons because they want to be in the majority and they want to have someone as the Supreme Chancellor. So why do you think that is? Why do you think um, George Lucas and some of the other visionaries of Star Wars felt it necessary to leave out the whole party system and the politics of Star Wars? Well, I think they went they went with the Civil War route, which is an, a, a pure us-against-them route, which is there are people who don't believe in, in the democracy. They think it's corrupt, and they're willing to go their own way. So I think political parties, from a storytelling perspective, probably would have bogged down the story of Star Wars. I think it would have been too much. That's purely the story angle, and I, I think it would have brought nothing to the table. From a diving in and like acting as if you live there on Coruscant and trying to understand it, I think if you put yourselves in those people's shoes, the reason it really didn't work because there's no ideology in the Senate. There's no ideology besides money and trade deals and economic interests. So you could say that all the systems who were brought into the Republic, they were there purely for their economic stability. Um, they were able to acquire trade deals, protection of the Jedi Order, but there's nothing really there in terms of what they believe in. Um, they say they believe in democracy, but what they really seem to believe in is stability, and we see that transpire as the prequels wrap up. So just in terms of understanding the way George Lucas put the Galactic Senate together, I think one of the best historical objects for us to look at is the Senate of the Roman Republic. Um, the Senate there continued to exist throughout their history up until the final fall of the Roman Empire, but over time they ceded more and more and more power to the executive. Um, during an emergency, the Senate and only the Senate could authorize the appointment of a dictator. Uh, the last ordinary dictator was appointed 204 BC. And after 204 BC, the Senate uh, responded to emergencies by passing the ultimate decree of the Senate. And the ultimate decree of the Senate, in Roman speak, suspended civil government. It just suspended democracy and declared something very similar to what we know as martial law. And I think you can take exactly what Jar Jar Binks gave uh, oh, Palpatine in, in episode two 
uh, is that that emergency powers ordinance, and he never gives it back. And you see in episode three, the delegation of 2000. The delegation of 2000 is that that group, uh, you know, Mon Mothma, uh, Organa, Padme, a couple other people who, who I, I don't really recognize. Um, they filed an actual letter and declaration demanding a return to normalcy at the conclusion of the war. And this was called the delegation of the 2000. Uh, it's 2000 representatives in the Senate who were signing this document to Palpatine saying, you know, we don't really support what's going on here in terms of the, in terms of your accruement of power, but we do expect it to be brought back. Those are deleted scenes from episode three and they're, they're really fascinating. And I, I just will take them at face value and assume that those are things that went on behind the scenes because they couldn't really be fit into the context of the movie. But what was really interesting about that delegation is in episode two, they're the loyalist committee. Do you remember when when they come in in the very beginning of the film, right after the assassination attempt on Padme's life? Um, they come in and they are referred to as the Loyalist Committee because at this time, systems are just starting to leave the Republic and join the Separatists. And so kind of back to what I was saying earlier is they have no ideology. Their ideology is patriotism, mm -hmm. defending the Republic, being united against a common enemy, which is civil war. And so all they care about is upholding the system, even if they don't really know what the system is. And Padme hits that on the head when she says, "What if, what if what we've been what we've been fighting for, defending, is actually the enemy itself?" The clip from Episode Three where she's talking with Anakin. Um, so what you have over time is the Loyalist Committee turns against Palpatine and becomes the Delegation 2000, expecting things to return to normalcy. And spoiler, they never do. Spoilers, Steven. Again, <laughs> my God, can we get through a show without you spoiling Star Wars? But we did, we did go over a whole lot here today. I mean, if you listeners have any thoughts on things that we missed, um, angles of this that we glazed over, uh, please shoot us an email because we'd love to hear from you. We'll read some emails here on the next couple episodes. Because um, this is a dense topic, but it's so much fun, isn't it, Tears, though? It is. It is fun, actually. It, it really is, though, because, I mean, really, we talked about it in the first episode. We are all passionate about Star Wars. If you're listening to this, you're passionate about Star Wars. But those passions come in different angles. And for Steven here, and Steven, honestly, thank you for sharing all that. Uh, Steven prepared so much research and information for this episode uh, that I wouldn't even thought about. And that's because Steven is passionate about Star Wars in a way that is different from the way I am passionate about it. And that comes out in the form of politics. And for me, it's interesting personally to listen to because it's an angle that I haven't thought about or haven't been critically thinking about. And it allows me to dive into a fandom that isn't familiar to me, and I think that's what we're trying to, trying to do. I believe we're trying to create an atmosphere that allows everyone to be able to discuss their fandom in a different way. Because for me, I discuss fandom in a way that differs from Steven. I enjoy diving into the universe and the unknown of Star Wars. I love the movies because I experience them, and I feel them, and I think about them. So for us to be able to sit here and do it in a, in a way that is different from each other makes this special to us. Now, we're trying to create something that is cohesive for you guys to listen to. We want to create something that is that allows you guys to feel like you're sitting in here in Steven's kitchen hanging out with us. Um, 
and we want to create segments that are familiar to you guys. Um, we're going to try to create uh, space for Steven to be able to talk more about politics and for me to be able to talk about my crackpot theories. And that actually brings me... <laughs> oh, yeah. This actually brings us into our newest idea for a segment, that being the crackpot or jackpot segment. Search your feelings, you know it to be true. No! No! <laughs> Take it away, cheers, though. Now, here's the thing. Uh, a <laughs> part of fandom that I love to dive into is the completely redundant and unnecessary speculation and theorizing of the new movies you really do i i love it i eat it up man and again for those of you who don't like to dive into this this can be considered spoiler territory so if that's the case just skip to the end where we're you give yourself a lot of credit to call it a spoiler (laughs) (laughs) because it's amazing by the way i figured it out (laughs) no you didn't no, you didn't. So here's the thing with this segment. What we're going to try to do is, is I'm going to try my best, uh, whether it be every week or every other week, I'm going to try my best to come up with a theory about these new movies and new characters that will probably spur a lot of controversy and probably a lot of anger from you relentless, unyielding cynics. But it's something that I like to do. I like to make people mad with my theories. Let's so, hear it. What's, let's hear so it. here what's, it is. What's the, the theory of the week? The crackpot or jackpot theory of the week is the Lore Santeca and Mads Mikkelsen connection. Let's begin. So, Lore Santeca, for those of you who don't know, is the old man the ambiguous old man that we see in the very beginning of The Force Awakens. Now, here's my theory. This comes from the uncertainty and the ambiguous nature of both Lor Santeca and Mads Mikkelsen's character in Rogue One. Now, eye rollers, roll your eyes, I know. Oh my goodness, the movies have to be connected. We don't know that. We don't know anything about Lor Santeca. Now, I have this picture here that I've sent to Steven of a side-by-side picture of Max von Sydow, the actor who plays Lor Santeca, and Mads Mikkelsen. My theory is that Mads Mikkelsen character, he's kind of your middle ground character. He's not necessarily on a side. And we're in the Dark Ages in this film. And there's not really a lot going on with the Jedi. There's just the ruling of the Empire. Now, despite... The uncertainty, I like to believe that whatever goes down in Rogue One, that Mads Mikkelsen's character will have a a paradigm-changing reality, where he shifts from being on the fence to completely for the light side of the Force, where it almost becomes a complete shift of character, where he's this guy who doesn't have have a care for the Force, has some kind of encounter that allows him to be exposed to the power of the force and then becomes enthralled with it and actually turns it into this this love and that inspires him to start a church of the force which in terms of what we know about Lor Santeca is his title he is part of the church of the force 
and honestly, if this were to be true in terms of them him playing a younger Lor Santeca, <clears throat> because Lor Santeca doesn't play a big part as much as we know, it could be a, enough of a connection to not kind of be an eye rolling. Oh, they're really doing this. It could be just enough to say, oh, that we know now about how he got to the place where he was giving Poe Dameron this information. Now, some people, I can already hear the, well, he's too old, he would be the, wouldn't match up. But it, if you think about it, it actually would. Because Mads Mikkelsen, although his actual age wouldn't match up, he looks fairly young. He's, I mean, he's, he's aged pretty well, so he could actually play it off as being fairly young to be the exact age that uh, Lor Santeca is. Now, if, realistically, Lor Santeca was actually born, I think it's 36 years before the Battle of Yavin, um, which would actually place uh, a pretty good, appropriate age for Mads Mikkelsen to play in the movie. at the Because we're I think we're talking three weeks before the Battle of Yavin in the, the timeline for this movie. So that would actually place the look of Mads Mikkelsen to be at the right age. Now... Uh, this could be a very good connection to the new films. It wouldn't be, in my opinion, a obnoxious, stretching connection. Because Lorsen Teka doesn't have any relation to anyone that we know of. Because that's a different theory altogether. <laughs> but I, I personally think that not only is this a viable option for a connection to the new movies, but it's not an exaggerated one. It almost seems like it could be natural where... There's some people who probably don't even... You say the name Lor Santeca and they're, they're just sitting there and saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Even big fans, because not a lot was said about his character, not a lot is known about it, other than that he's part of the Church of the Force and respects Princess Leia. Show me your evidence. I am, you're, are you old, looking at this picture? Old white people look alike? <laughs> <laughs> just hold, just take a second to look at the picture. Look at the, the eye wrinkles, man. So that's the crux of your theory? Look, man, well, yes, but just let me... Okay. Eye wrinkles? <laughs> They're very important. They're deep. They speak levels. No, honestly, all I'm trying to say is there is a possible connection here. A connection as to how he knows Leia so well, how he's so connected. And it wouldn't be so dramatic as to take you out of the movie. Um, because I, I don't think they're just... I can't subscribe to the theory that they're just putting in these new characters and these new elements of the Star Wars universe without connecting it in the smallest way. I don't think they're going to do a big thing like Snoke, although last week I really did, but now obviously Pablo crushed my dreams. I don't think that they're going to do anything so big that while you're watching it you're like, okay, now I'm just watching a documentary on how to connect movies. Because um, I think some people have fatigue with that, with like the Marvel films. So I know it sounds a little crazy, all right, but just from pictures that I've seen side by sides of Mads Mikkelsen and Max von Sydow, they just maybe it's because they're white. I don't know. Am I racist? I don't care. <laughs> they look so similar to me, and I just think there maybe, just maybe, there's a connection. And it, would, it wouldn't be that bad. I wouldn't roll my eyes. So, <laughs> final verdict on this week's crackpot or jackpot theory. Dude, total jack crackpot. <laughs> it's what? Not, okay. not even close. Fine. Not even close. No. <laughs> no. It's not true. 
That's impossible. So let's ask you guys. What do you guys think? Is this crackpot or jackpot? Do you think that I'm just crazy coming up with these theories like a hermit on Tatooine? Or do I actually have some validity to what I'm saying? Let us know. Reach out to us on Twitter. Tweet me personally if you think I'm crazy or not. Fantastic. So, Tirso, what is your bantha fodder for the week? Uh, I've been spending a lot of time trying to develop some more comedy routines for my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Trying to focus on new ways to make you guys laugh. So if you want to go over to YouTube.com, search for Tirso Perez. I do comedy, comedy sketch videos, and some stuff with my lady where we just talk about relatable aspects of life. So hoping to get that a little bit more off the ground. It's really funny. Uh, I like I like your YouTube channel a lot. Thanks, man. It makes me laugh. Your uh, your comedic timing and the editing is really really clever. I appreciate it. And I'm hoping to get Steven in on some of it, so you might actually see Steven in there. Let's see his, his pretty not, face. I'm not a funny guy. <laughs> I think you're funny, Steven. I'm not a funny guy. Is that an impression? Was it's that my impression? <laughs> Such a per perfect timing for that situation. Uh, you know, it's from it's from Three Amigos. Uh, oh man, I'm so El, lost El, on El, this reference. El Guapo. Okay, it's, it's uh, the old Steve Martin Chevy Chase movie. El Guapo is the Mexican gangster. He goes, "These are funny guys." <laughs> well, I give you an A for effort. It will say on my tombstone, "He was a good trier." <laughs> he tried. Um, period. My bantha fodder for this week is. Last night was the White House Correspondents' Dinner. How awesome is that? Um, this is an amazing annual event to watch when the president uh, addresses the press corps and all sorts of Hollywood celebrities and does a stand-up comedy routine, roasting all of them, himself, and uh, other people in politics. Um, it's just really fascinating to watch because people are so darn uptight. Everybody is sitting there knowing it's going to be a, a, a laugh and gab fest, but they try so hard not to laugh and they take themselves so seriously. Um, the comedy this year was by Larry Wilmore, uh, who replaced, replaced Stephen Colbert on Comedy Central. And I think, I think he was really hit and miss. Um, I'm not a really big fan of his show, and I was never a fan of him when he would uh, when he would guest on Jon Stewart. But nonetheless, he was funny, and he he made some really great jabs at like CNN and Wolf Blitzer yeah. and and the Trump family as well. And but just like no one would laugh, especially he he just knocked Wolf Blitzer as not being a real newsman, which is totally true. Um, <laughs> and Wolf Blitzer was sitting there just totally just stone faced like. <laughs> How dare you? And then he did the same thing to CNN's Don Lemon, just nailed him. And Don Lemon was laughing and he flicked him off, but he still he still took it and enjoyed it. That's and that's good. what the White House Correspondents' Dinner is all about. Um, Obama was fantastic this year. He usually is every year. Um, and I will actually be sad to see him go because his brand of dry humor is just fantastic. Yeah, uh, he's got it on lockdown. There was a really great video that they played this year of him uh, hanging out with John Boehner, watching movies and, and drinking wine and smoking. <laughs> so it was it's pretty funny. If you haven't uh, if you haven't watched the White House Correspondence Center, you should look it up on YouTube. Um, it's uh, it's pretty funny. 
All right, so that is all the time we have for this week. Um, from this point on, we will have a regular show schedule. You can expect an episode from us every other week. Um, this should be coming to you on May the 4th. No better time to release a Star Wars podcast, wouldn't you say to yourself? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Beltway Banthas, on Instagram at Beltway Banthas Podcast. Please, please shoot us an email at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. Thoughts, questions, concerns, ideas for folks we can interview, topics we can cover, ground left uncovered. Tirso, where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at It's Just Tirso. You can also find me doing comedy on YouTube at Tirso Perez. And you can follow me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. I look forward to hearing from you. Um, this should be distributed on iTunes. Uh, you can also find it on our main website, BeltwayBanthas.com. But this should be streaming on iTunes and uh, Google Play and Stitcher this week. So please write us a review. This will help get the podcast out to more people. And folks, thanks for just being along for the ride with us. We are new to podcasting. We are new to all of this. So we're just excited to be doing it. Um, and we are looking forward to growing along with you uh, in this experience. May the 4th be with you. Laugh it up, fuzzball.